Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao. You may have noticed that we are releasing a series of interviews that we conducted before the COVID-19 crisis to provide some more long-term reflection on our world. Today, I would like to present probably the longest interview I have ever released so far on Policy Punchline. It is with Professor Arvind Panagaria, uh, and it was recorded in the spring of 2019. Professor Panagaria is a professor of economics at Columbia University. He is also the former and first vice chairman of the National Institution for Transforming India, known as Niti Aayog. Uh, this is quite a significant role because the Indian government established Niti Aayog in 2015 to replace the Planning Commission, uh, which followed a top-down model. Uh, the Institution Council comprises all the state chief ministers along with some of the most leading public intellectuals and scholars who all came together uh, for the mission of transforming India. Uh, Niti Aayog is directly chaired by Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi and Professor Panagaria was nominated by Prime Minister Modi to be the founding vice chairman. So as you can see, it is quite a significant policy-making role in India. Uh, we invited Professor Panagaria to Princeton's campus for a public talk about India's economic reforms and future outlook uh, back in April of 2019. Uh, I recorded around 45 minutes of this podcast interview with him, but because there was just so much more to talk about, we actually decided to continue the conversation a few weeks later in Professor Panagaria's office at Columbia University. He was just so extremely kind to take many hours to dive through some of those difficult questions about India with me. I was really inspired by what Professor Panagaria has told me during the interview and I became more and more fascinated by India as a country, as an economy, and as a culture. Uh, finally, in, in December of 2020, uh, around half a year after my interview with Professor Panagaria, I actually went on a three-week-long yoga and meditation trip to India with Princeton's Office of Religious Life. Some of our listeners might not know this side of me at all, and uh, you might be surprised to hear this, uh, but around 15 other students and I visited uh, yoga institutes and Hindu temples from Mumbai to Rishikesh to New Delhi. Uh, it was a life-transforming experience for me as I not only finally got to see India in person, but I became very close with a few Hindu monks that I spent a lot of time with over there. Uh, we would spend hours discussing the meaning of Hindu philosophy, and they showed me and taught me many different ways to live out one's life meaningfully. Uh, I shall soon present you one of those long conversations I recorded back when I was in India soon, but uh, for now I want to come back to my interview with Professor Panagaria. Uh, as I mentioned, he and I um, talked about India's economic reforms and future outlook. Uh, you may notice that my voice might be slightly different a year ago or that uh, many of my questions uh, were quite naive back in 2019 and still they are. Uh, I apologize in advance and I hope that I may soon have another opportunity to talk with Professor Panagaria as a follow-up conversation to many of the things I've observed and learned about India uh, on my trip. Uh, again, despite of all my naivete, I sincerely hope that you will enjoy this conversation that we recorded last year and that you may treat this as an opportunity or a gateway to learn more about this fascinating country like I did. 
So here is my conversation with Professor Arvind Panagaria. I sincerely hope you'll like it. You just gave a lunch talk at Princeton's Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance titled An Evaluation of India's Economic Reforms and Its Future Outlook. Uh, what are some of the reforms, the future outlook that you talked about along with the challenges you said? So well, I talked today uh, a bit about the reforms that India did in the past, uh, which was uh, largely, you know, if I was to summarize, I would say it is dismantling of the license permit raj, as we call uh, uh, in Hindi, um, somewhat anglicized. Um, and uh, uh, that started off in the 1990s, and uh, then I described uh, how uh, Indian economy responded positively to those reforms, and how India's growth uh, uh, went up from something like less than 4% during its uh, first three and a half decades to today about 7% plus. Uh, so that is the sort of, you know, looking at the past reforms, but then uh, I also talked a bit about what India needs to do in the future. Uh, you mentioned this um, whole idea of coming out of agricultural sector to the indust industry and services sectors. Why is that so important? Why is this such transition so important for developing countries? Okay, so if, you know, so we also looked at during the talk uh, uh, the experience of some of the successful countries that transformed themselves from traditional rural agricultural economies into modern urban economies. Uh, economies such as South Korea, Taiwan, China. Those are the three prime kind of examples. Uh, and in each of these cases, uh, uh, as the economy grew rapidly, this growth came first from manufacturing, then also from services. Uh, and that uh, growth also drew workers out of agriculture into industry and services. And so, you know, as we, and, and of course, as workers move out of agriculture into industry and services, we also see urbanization. Um, and uh, uh, so, so today, uh, uh, these economies uh, uh, have a very small uh, workforce in agriculture, China more uh, than others, but, you know, countries such as Korea and Taiwan, very, very small proportion of the, meaning less than 5% uh, of the workforce is in agriculture. Uh, and that's part of modernization uh, because uh, uh, this also leads to urbanization uh, and uh, of course hand in hand education training etc go as well and this the same process has not worked as well in India so over the years the share of agriculture in uh, the GDP has fallen quite a bit down to about 15 percent now but uh, still India's workforce uh, I would say even today, maybe about 45% remains in agriculture. And that could pose a big challenge, right? Well, the, because the challenge is that here is 45% of the workforce which has to live on 15% of the GDP. Uh, and so that translates into very small output per worker. Uh, and, and therefore, uh, what you end up with is uh, like in industry, the uh, output per worker is almost five times that in agriculture. In services, output per worker is almost six times that in agriculture. Uh, uh, and, and, and so, uh, you know, you're not able to give your vast population, which is in agriculture, uh, a high enough living standard. Uh, and, and so in, in India also, as in South Korea and uh, uh, China, uh, this process of moving workers out of agriculture into 
uh, jobs that are that pay decent wages in industry and services has to begin to take root better. That would probably be the biggest challenge that India will have to face in the next few phases of economic growth. You absolutely, say. absolutely, Tiger. Absolutely, yeah. And what are some of the political resistance uh, that you foresee in that process? Yeah. You know, so it's not so much the resistance, but uh, it, it is the, 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 the fact that the default option ends up being that, you know, in a democratic system, uh, uh, a very large population is in agriculture and rural areas. So therefore, the votes are there uh, in rural areas, in agriculture. And so every political party says that I want to do something for the farmers, right? So doing something for the farmers translates into uh, uh, trying to devise ways of increasing incomes of the farmers, uh, increasing productivity in farming. But that cannot go very far, unfortunately, because uh, uh, if the output per worker itself is small, then even if you do marketing reforms that give larger share of the price to the farmer rather than the uh, wholesaler, retailer, and other traders, uh, the initial output per worker being relatively small, there's only so much you can do with that. There is also the problem that if you raise, try to do something good through raising productivity, which of course all governments try to do, and we should do, but uh, at the end of the day, the, uh, uh, if you raise productivity, output rises, but the price falls. So it doesn't translate into high income. Uh, so, so because agriculture elasticity, you know, the demand, uh, both income elasticity, price elasticity tend to be low, as a result of which any increases in income or any increases in output end up translating into decreases in prices. Uh, and, and so unless we move, unless India moves a lot of these workers out of agriculture uh, into industry and services, uh, uh, it's going to be difficult. I, I mean, I really don't see that uh, uh, we can keep that many workers in agriculture and at the same time raise their income significantly. We I mean, this hasn't happened in the last 70 years, right? If you look at it, if anything, the output per worker uh, in agriculture relative to output per worker in industry and services has been declining. Uh, and, and so you've got to move. Now, if you really move a substantial workforce out of agriculture, then you also re increase land per worker in agriculture. And that gives a boost to uh, you know, output per worker automatically uh, without actually having a corresponding price effect. Uh, so, so this is why uh, you, know, you help, it, help this in two ways, that the workers that move out they get better living standards, better wages, and those who are left there also have more land to work with per worker. So th those who are left there also experience an increase in output per worker. So that's a win-win. But as you sort of uh, hinted by the question you asked, politically, uh, uh, the, the instincts of the politicians are that let's do good for the farmers. So that leads to somewhat of a neglect of process of urbanization, process of industrialization, which is where the real solution is. So Raghum Rajan, uh, former Reserve Bank of India governor and former chief economist of the IMF, he expressed doubts over India's economy growing at 7%, even um, because he was saying that not enough jobs were being created. 
and many economists are also concerned with uh, the political interference of statistical data. Uh, so, so is, is how, how is Indian economy actually doing, you think? Yeah. So there is this, you know, doubts that have been expressed, uh, but I must say that, you know, th these are doubts expressed uh, uh, without, you know, persuasive evidence. Uh, now, Indian statistical agencies have been very independent. There has been a great tradition, actually, of all the governments uh, letting statistical agencies do what they do. Uh, uh, and there is no interference that happens from the government. Uh, I mean, this is unlike China, you know, I think even the international agencies in the case of China had raised these doubts. But in the Indian case, you know, the, the IMF accepts India's data, the World Bank accepts India's data, United Nations accepts India's data, there's been no such issue. Uh, uh, um, uh, 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 and in fact, the Central Statistical Organization, when it uh, uh, adopts a methodology, it issues a long document. So there is currently a 40-page document that outlines the entire uh, methodology, uh, methodology exactly, uh, methodology of how they estimate. So unless the critics, you know, who feel that there is some problem with the methodology or what have you, unless they say that, look, this is the wrong step or that is the wrong step, uh, it's hard to tell, you know, what they are saying. Uh, uh, if they feel that methodology has a problem, then point out, uh, you know, th this is all transparently laid out by this, uh, the CSO, the Central Statistical Office. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, in fact, the government will be much too happy to adjust its methodology. Actually, the current methodology was adopted on the recommendation of a technical committee that had been set up under the previous government. Uh, so, but because you know no government interferes, so the process continues. So, previous government appointed this committee. That committee looked into the methodology in great detail. Uh, and made certain recommendations, which then the uh, chief statistician uh, 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 of the Ministry of Statistics and Program Implementation, uh, MOSPI it is called, uh, he ultimately implemented uh, the, the, the recommendations of that uh, group or that uh, technical group. So, th so I, I think, you know, there has been some tendency uh, in recent years for a set of uh, uh, observers to replace their uh, uh, gut feelings, right, you know, for the data that, oh, you know, you are saying 7% growth, but I don't feel that there is 7% growth. So I'm really hard pressed to understand what is this feel factor. Right. So isn't sometimes the, the feel factor also kind of accurate for a lot of people that have been in India <coughs> for so long? They say, oh, this year is just not doing as good as five years ago, three yeah, years ago. Yeah, yeah. So, so this is where I, I, I think you can't replace feel factor for the actual data for the following reason. For uh, Because what happens is that in a, an economy, particularly a developing country, you are going to have sectors that are doing well and sectors that are not doing well. Sectors that are doing well happily go, they do their work, you know, they are progressing, they are growing well, so they don't say anything. Sectors that are doing poorly. They always say steel industry, construction. I mean, these have been the kind of sectors which have had problems in India recently. They scream. They are, so, so you hear from them. So, so it, it it gets magnified and say, oh, there is something. You know, the economy is really not doing very well. But of course, if you look at the data, I mean, for a lot of the time, you think people are not investing. So I looked at the data, 
and the investment rate is close to about 30 percent of the GDP, uh, which is slightly lower than what it had been at the peak. 2007-8, I think that's when the investment rate was over 35 percent. Today it's around th sort of 30 percent, but it's still a decent investment rate. Uh, you can't say that you know the investors are not investing. I mean the data tells you that there is 30 percent uh, investment happening. Uh, so this is why I, I think that you, you really can't uh, you know substitute your judgment. Because judgment will always be derived from a particular aspect of the economy, particular part of the economy. Uh, what you are looking for in GDP is aggregate. Ultimately, you know, what do the growing and declining sectors add up to? As I was reading, I've been reading his book, The Third Pillar, How Markets and the State Leave the Community Behind. And uh, Rajan just thus concluded that India sort of needs a more competitive more independent private sector with higher public status uh, and, and also more small and medium-sized enterprises. So w what do you make of this comment? Is the private sector not being valued enough in India or um, because you were just talking about entrepreneurship mm -hmm. in India and how some of them also don't value uh, stitching work <laughs> so they don't go into the clothing industry or something like that. The, the top industrialists actually in some ways you know uh, before Prime Minister Modi probably they had too much access to the government if you think about it you know because a lot of the loans got given uh, without due diligence because as you know our banks are largely in the public sector the government owns them and often uh, these in, these businessmen were so influential politically uh, before Prime Minister Modi uh, that uh, you know the calls will get made from New Delhi to the Bombay meaning from you know, the government to the banks uh, and the loans would be given or uh, evergreening of loans uh, continued as a result of which uh, uh, I mean that played a very important role in today's non-performing assets being so high in the Indian banks because you know that's that that's a problem that is uh, still uh, uh, work being work in progress, meaning cleaning up of those non-performing assets. So, uh, you know, traditionally, actually, industrialists have had uh, a reasonable degree of uh, uh, respect and access, actually, to the to the Indian establishment. Actually, too much of it, if you ask, and then Prime Minister Modi has tried to change that. Uh, and what the way, you know, the way one person uh, I thought very nicely. Uh, 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 described was that you know the government needs to be uh, um, industry friendly, which is what Mr. Modi tries to be, but it should not be industrialist friendly, meaning you know being favorable to some particular industrialists. I think that's what leads to crony capitalism and all. Uh, uh, so, but uh, but uh, in terms of overall respect, I mean, I would say uh, India has had a tradition. I mean, I come, I'm a Jain. And among the Jains, there's a, always tradition that you know those who created wealth were within their community very well respected. Right. But of course, then there was also the other side that those who successfully uh, created wealth also shared their wealth with the others within the community. Right. So there's a good tradition actually among the Jains, like the burghers in uh, in in, in uh, 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 the Netherlands. Um, yeah. So this is very similar for Jains. Uh, so, so wealth usually look you know even in the rural areas, right? If if, if you are the wealthy, you know, then usually there will be only one or two wealthy people. Uh, the the you know, wealth itself brings uh, uh, respect. 
So you were just mentioning the uh, Prime Minister Modi, and in previous interviews and articles, you mentioned that for India's economy, what matters the most is top leadership. If the le top leadership believes in reforms, you can count on the implementation. Uh, do you think the current leadership in India is pro-reform? Uh, and just to extend that question, how important of a role does senior leadership usually play in a developing country like India? So let me take the the second part of your question first. Uh, if you look at the history of, of policy making in India, the top leadership always was critical, always was critical. Um, start with Prince Jawaharlal Nehru, who was the first prime minister. He shaped all our earlier policies. Uh, you know, uh, 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 industrial policy, which led to the adoption of licensing. Uh, general uh, policy of self-sufficiency, which eventually led to this very autarkic or, or anti-foreign trade kind of policies. Uh, these were all shaped by Prime Minister Nehru. Uh, that it, it very much was uh, uh, derived from his philosophy and thinking. This whole Soviet model that India adopted, that was clearly decision uh, process, was completely driven by Prime Minister Nehru. And then you can come further up. You know, his daughter. Uh, well, actually, in between, there was a prime minister, uh, which is Lal Bahadur Shastri. Now, Shastri was the prime minister for only about 18, 19 months, maybe 20 months. Uh, but uh, his philosophy actually was different from Nehru's, because uh, he felt that agriculture was very important. And so even within that short period, he really you know, laid down the foundation of Green Revolution. Uh, he established the Food Corporation of India established the uh, National Dairy Development Board, uh, all these within, you know, short period. So yeah, even within the short period, Prime Minister Shastri could make this uh, change. And then came Mrs. Indira Gandhi, uh, or Prime Minister Indira Gandhi, uh, who was more socialist than Prime Minister Nehru. And that is the period during which we created so many uh, uh, restrictions, uh, 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 nationalization happened, all the banks were nationalized, oil industry got nationalized, insurance sector got nationalized, coal mines got nationalized, lot of the labor market re uh, regulations came in, uh, Urban Land Ceilings Act was brought in, there so many things that got done within a period of seven or eight years, which is what the subsequent reforms are trying to undo. Again, very much a stamp of Mrs. Indira Gandhi. Uh, Prime Minister Indira Gandhi. Uh, then you come reforms. Prime Minister Narasimha Rao, completely, if there is no Prime Minister Narasimha Rao, India would have no reforms. He was a courageous Prime Minister, broke away from the past, uh, brought in uh, uh, Dr. Manmohan Singh, who was a professional economist, uh, who had been in the government, of course, for much of his career. Uh, and uh, appointment uh, of, uh, of Dr. Singh as finance minister led, uh, uh, but, but it was, agenda was very much uh, Prime Minister Narasimha Rao's. He provided the political cover, he made the decision. Uh, and then you come later, you know, that, uh, again the uh, 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 Prime Minister Atal Bihari Vajpayee, who is the first kind of non, uh, really serious non-Congress or BJP Prime Minister. Uh, and uh, he was very pro-reform. For the first time, he started talking about double-digit growth. Uh, 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 and, and again, he left his stamp on, on the policies. Then the following 10 years, so Vajpayee lost the election. And then the following 10 years, you get uh, uh, a government where the prime minister is Dr. Manmohan Singh, 
but the real, real power behind the throne is uh, Mrs. Sonia Gandhi, is the widow of uh, 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 Prime Minister uh, 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 Rajiv uh, uh, Gandhi. Uh, uh, and uh, she has a very different philosophy. She is very much uh, inspired by her mother-in-law, meaning uh, Prime Minister Indira Gandhi. And so she goes back to the socialist days and a lot of the policies she introduces, uh, um, uh, which I think Prime Minister uh, uh, um, Singh goes along with, uh, are really not very pro-reform. So again, we get, particularly in the second half of this 10-year term, again, we end up with uh, several of these policies which need to be undone now, the Land Acquisition Act, the Food Security Act. Uh, the way it is done, you know, I mean, you need the social safety net, but uh, it, 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 I don't think it's it's uh, it, it's done uh, in a way that it that it maximizes the benefits to the poor. Uh, and then there was also this retrospective taxation problem, which now nobody is. I mean, people have forgotten about it, but you know, the, uh, a lot of the inv foreign investors got very scared of coming to India uh, because you know uh, they changed the law and they changed the law retrospectively to hit uh, some of these major companies with a very large uh, tax bill. Uh, so, so this is, uh, you know, and then Mr. Modi came in, Prime Minister Modi, uh, he was a different Prime Minister and clearly in this Prime Minister Modi's uh, uh, time, uh, uh, clearly he is uh, uh, the man who is driving all the policy. So, very important, the Prime Minister is very important and, and in the current administration, uh, uh, most definitely so. Uh, uh, Pretty much, you know, uh, 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 the, the thinking uh, behind a lot of the policy changes that have happened is Prime Minister Modi's. I mean, in one, one fundamental way he's a little different is uh, from the previous governments uh, is that uh, he uh, li likes to uh, complete projects. So he says, well, rural electrification. So he said, let's get focused, bring electricity to everybody. So, so he's said, you know, saturate everything, you know, get it to 100%. So, so he's been doing that. Rural roads, he's trying to do the same thing. Uh, LPG, the the liquid petroleum gas for cooking, right? So, it's a little different philosophy. He also is a man who wants to do things on scale. So, he has done, you know, these these bank accounts that you open, bank, you know, very large scale. Everybody should have bank accounts. Uh, Aadhaar, the biometric identity program that he started, again. Is it we got to do everything? We did it on scale. Uh, then, of course, he took the most almost impossible project he took on, which was the Swachh Bharat, which is that toilet for everybody. And so, when he launched this campaign, he said, I want to finish it in five years because I want to do it by uh, 2nd October 2019, which is the 150th anniversary, birth anniversary of Mahatma Gandhi, the father of the nation. Uh, he said, I want to gift the, the, the father of the nation as clean India. And which he meant by that everybody has a toilet. So, in rural in India, you know, only 38% of the households had toilets at the time he announced this program. And so, which means that, you know, over whatever this 60, 70 year period, all we have, everything we had done amounted to only 38% households having toilets. So, within five years to think that, you know, you will do it for the remaining 62%, uh, 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 I mean, I thought that this was, this cannot happen. But boy, he delivered. He managed to do it. So, 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 so there is a clear mark of Prime Minister Modi on the current set of policies and programs that we are seeing. Uh, what are some of the lessons the world could learn from India's economic growth story, and also 
uh, the current political economic reforms that we're seeing right now. I mean, because you mentioned um, privatization, you mentioned how the transition from agricultural sector to uh, industrial sector. That seems a lot of like you know India uh, learning a lot of lessons from other countries from their growth story. What do you think is so unique about India's story that the rest of the world uh, can learn? Okay, from? so so the f really the big lesson here, I would say, uh, which is very different here. Uh, from the Indian experience than all the other successful transformer countries uh, is that democracy is not in the way of the rapid growth. You know, before India, uh, people used to say that, gee, you know, um, uh, in, in democracy, maybe you can grow at most at 5% or 6%. You know, I think perhaps the best example we, uh, we had before India was that of Chile, which was also a relatively small country. Uh, but even Chile, on a kind of, you know, take a long-term basis, it didn't grow for more than 5 or 6% a year. But India actually managed to grow uh, over 7% over a sustained period, uh, uh, and it is a vibrant democracy, and it is also a very large country. So in this sense, I think the, the Indian experience is quite unique, uh, that uh, it, it, it tells you that, you know, you can carry such a diverse nation along with you, uh, uh, you can have a democratic uh, uh, regime, and you can still grow at seven to eight percent. I think that's a remarkable thing. India's growth story has been very, very impressive indeed. But the fruits of economic growth have not been shared equally. I guess the, the inequality in India is also quite um, polarizing. Uh, uh, so again, you know, the, 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 the inequality issue is a little more compl complex, and I'll come to let me come to that in a minute. But first, uh, uh, you know, for a country like India, uh, the, the the first and foremost issue is that growth helped the poor. Right? India has had, uh, you know, the, the, those at the uh, very bottom of the income distribution uh, are abject poor. Uh, you know, it's really a case of extreme poverty. Uh, destitution, really. Uh, and there, there is absolutely no doubt that uh, growth has been incredibly uh, effective in eradicating that kind of poverty. Uh, I think the, you know, uh, all evidence shows that uh, once India's growth uh, happened at 7% or higher levels, uh, poverty declined very dramatically, very massively. Now, inequality, right? Uh, my own personal view is that uh, uh, in, in, in a poor country like India, uh, if you can combat poverty and inequality even rises a little bit, that is tolerable, uh, uh, as opposed to a situation in which for 40 years or 50 years, uh, we did not get any growth, we, uh, uh, and maybe inequality didn't rise, but the poor were not helped at all either. The destitution remained. Uh, so, if, if those are my two options, I'll certainly take the option that uh, gr uh, growth, maybe with somewhat increased inequality, but substantial reduction in poverty, uh, I would certainly take that. Uh, uh, but uh, now, inequality, as I said, you know, is a more complicated issue because there are so many different measures of inequality. You can give me any country, I'll give you some measure of inequality which would have gotten worse take one one specific measure urban rural inequality you give me a single country today where urban rural inequality did not rise uh, with rapid growth you know we think of korea and taiwan as you know very uh, growth with 
generally was was very you know very it it happened without inequality rising but if i take the measure of urban rural inequality to be sure that inequality actually rose in in every in, in those cases also so there are always some measures uh, you know you can take top 5% ratio of income of the top 5% to the bottom 5% you'll generally see that that inequality measure would rise because why what happens because for growth to happen somebody has to create wealth the person who creates wealth even if that person keeps 5% of the income to himself or herself and the remaining 95% gets distributed to all the rest that person will still become you know when you are creating billions and billions of dollars of worth of wealth very quickly you become billionaire so india india you know since this growth hap started happening has been creating people tell me some people tell me that one billionaire every two months <laughs> is being added so I'm not sure whether that's a correct figure but you know certainly uh, uh, if you go back to 1990s i doubt that we had any billionaires maybe there was one or two but today you got more than 100 billionaires in india so if you take that kind of measure yes of course the inequality has gone up from that measure but if you take economist measure which is the gini coefficient there you don't see a whole lot of movement actually it has gone sometimes it has risen sometimes it has fallen uh, probably today uh, overall uh, gini coefficient value might be a little bit higher than it was in the 1980s or 1990s uh but it's not a massive kind of shift in the gini coefficient so how do we stop inequality how do we make sure in places like india and china and other developing countries we can address those issues i mean you were the former chief economist of asian development bank which looked at those issues yeah. Yeah, so you, you know i mean in the end the really the the uh, you will never eliminate inequality because just think about it you know you, you you are a student i am a professor if i go in a class and say that okay regardless of how good or how bad is your performance i'm going to give everyone a b or i'm going to give everyone a nobody would work i mean tho th those who are not great students they'd say well why do any work i'll get a, a anyway and the best students will also say that well you know i'm not going to get a plus uh, 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 or uh, even if i do the best exam you know everybody will get the same grade so you you basically take away the incentive to work uh, after all you know uh, unless there are some variable incentives uh, uh, to those who work uh, uh, versus those who don't work uh, you'll not get progress but the inequality could be different though right as have with somebody for certain people no matter how hard they work there's still absolutely so so that is where you need to work that there's to be equality of opportunity uh, also there have to be mechanisms within the system uh, at, 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 at that uh, uh, at least try to you know reduce the impact of uh, uh, the birth right you know the, uh, so therefore system has to have scholarships and so forth so if talented students happen to have parents who are very poor who can't afford you know the state should provide uh, scholarships uh so uh, so this redistribution programs ought to be there institutions should be designed in a way that uh, it doesn't in unduly favor those who come from very wealthy background uh, uh so the equality of opportunity is extremely important uh, 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 uh and uh, some redistribution of course uh, uh, is very much desirable too 
and uh, certainly in the Indian democratic system, a uh, lot more redistribution has happened than in the other successful countries. You know, if I look at China, uh, Korea, Taiwan, etc., in the early years of their development, there was hardly any redistribution programs. India, actually, by that standard, you know, started on redistribution programs uh, much sooner. So, uh, uh, all those, you know, but, but remember that, you know, e even with all these redistribution programs, in the end, you're not going to eliminate equality, nor, you know, uh, in a way, uh, is it feasible because uh, if you say that uh, uh, you get the same thing regardless of the effort you make, then that kills the incentive to do effort. And remember that even, you know, countries like Soviet Union, or entities like Soviet Union, which uh, basically built their uh, entire economic philosophy around equality, really couldn't eliminate equality. In fact, those who were in power were in no way equal to those people who they ruled. Uh, India's India is really impressive in the sense that it was a democracy long before it was industrialized and developed. Uh, and based on your understanding of the country, is there anything unique about India's culture or people that made this possible? I'm very, very curious about this thing because Indians are doing really, really well right now across the world. Yeah, you know, in India, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, Martin Wolf, Martin Wolf, you know, from Financial Times, uh, he once told me that, you know, uh, that, that China is easy for us to understand. It's relatively straightforward. India is much too complicated for us to understand. <laughs> so it's because, you know, in, in India is extremely diverse. Uh, you know, you move a few uh, hundred miles and the language changes. Uh, then religion, uh, religion is different, ethnicity, uh, caste system. Uh, so it's, it is a bit of a complicated uh, society. But also, you know, it, 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 India, it, 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 you'll find a whole range of things, like from most ancient type of living to the most modern type of living, you know, you, uh, there, uh, there because of the still persistence of some of the poverty uh, and uh, uh, lack of uh, full urbanization, there are still people uh, who are living in an incredibly traditional way. Uh, 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 the same way that probably their ancestors were living 200 years ago. Uh, but then you also got incredibly modern pockets uh, of India in uh, Bollywood and whatnot. Uh, which will match almost any uh, modern uh, city or modern country in the industrialized world. So, so that also adds another dimension of uh, <laughs> complication. Uh, at the same time, I think you know there is a certain culture which does unite the entire country, and uh, therefore the, you know a lot of people initially had predicted that India will break up, right? You know, soon after independence, uh, people thought that India, you know, as a single country, will not survive. Uh, didn't happen, uh, actually, uh, uh, and, and to some degree, I think, you know, some of the leadership did play a very important role in, in that. There were uh, separatist movements, uh, you know, they're based on language uh, and so forth, uh, but uh, leadership was pragmatic, they found uh, solutions. So India sort of moves slowly, but gradually it finds a solution, uh, and, and that has been, I think, in the strength of India's democracy. Since we're already talking about India's culture, how do, how do we explain the fact that India has a successful democracy? Because a lot of people say uh, you need modernization, you need, some, some, some people take a voluntarist approach, some people take a culturalist approach, and they say the British people laid the correct infrastructure for bureaucracy, 
and the Indians took over. So there are many explanations as to yeah. how yeah, but, it... But, but I think the, the historical facts are very important that, you know, to some degree, uh, democracy had been a part of Indian, Indian society for a very long time. You know, it may, there may have been an imperial power, but at the village level, there were always these village councils which operated relatively democratically. And uh, uh, that, I think, you know, at the village level, uh, uh, certainly instilled this uh, sense of, you know, that we ought to try to solve the problems jointly and, and, and make the, take decisions for the village jointly. So, so to some degree, I think, you know, the population was prepared. And uh, uh, one of the very interesting decisions that got made at the independence uh, was to give universal suffrage. So in a way, I think, if I'm not mistaken, probably universal suffrage came to India, may have come to India before the United States, I wonder. Yeah, um, I don't know, check that, you know. But yeah, we'll fact check that, but, but uh, yeah. But, uh, so do you think, uh, you know, in the long run, some people say China's system is very quick in terms of pushing economic growth because it's a very centralized system uh, Authoritative. India, right. And India might t take a little bit longer. But do you think in the very long term, India's system will eventually, uh, political system will eventually do better in terms of efficiency? Well, for India, certainly, you see, the, the, the way I think of it is that, uh, that, that in China, the authoritative system, authoritarian system can work. Because historically, if you look at it, China is very homogeneous. Uh, uh, and, and, and the, the population is largely homogeneous. Uh, uh, and long history uh, of imperial powers running the country. Right. Um, India is very different. Historically, you know, uh, it, imperial powers were, never, uh, were only rarely actually, you know, there's short, very short moments in India's history where an, an a very effective imperial power manages to unite the country. But, you know, once that uh, efficient power is gone, it breaks up again. Uh, and, 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 and the culturally, socially, uh, religiously, it's a very non-homogeneous country. Do you attribute India's democratic society, uh, any of it, to British uh, people's rule right before that? The, the fact that they established a bureaucracy, it trained the bureaucrats. You see, that's where the counterfactual is very difficult to assess, right? You know, what would have been counterfactual? Uh, now, I mean, historically, this is how it evolved. So therefore, you know, the actual facts as they evolve, we know what they are. Uh, but, you know, uh, suppose there, there had been no British, right? What would have been India's transition then as modernity kind of began to come? Uh, that that's a hard thing to to, to figure. I mean, to, to predict. You know, that suppose uh, when when the British started conquering uh, in, in in the late 18th century, um, suppose they were not there, right? I mean, at that time, of course, there were all these different uh, rulers in different regions uh, fighting with each other and all for control. Uh, now over the following 200 years, absent British, how would it have evolved? We don't know. It's very hard to, to, to uh, predict the counterfactual. Uh, uh, but, but certainly what we do know is that uh, there was some system left in place. 
and uh, uh, some of the things uh, came through. Uh, uh, bureaucracy, as you mentioned, uh, also the modern education, uh, both uh, of the university and college variety, as well as the schooling kind of change. You know, the British system came into India, um, even though you know the population was not still terribly educated. The, uh, the, the literacy rates were still low and all, but still. You know, the westernization to some degree had happened. So we know what actually did happen. That part we know. In terms of the education part, do you think that is really, really important? Because a lot of people say certain poorer countries, or even China nowadays, cannot really have an effective democracy because people are not educated. But, right? but, but actually, see, in India's case, the democracy part worked out well without right. education. How? How? So, so, so you see, this is where I said the old history that of these, you know, uh, village Villages. councils and so forth uh, was was pretty helpful. Uh, uh, I, I think, you know, and the universal suffrage that uh, was introduced right at the beginning uh, uh, in the post-independence era, uh, which brought everybody to start voting. And and truly, I mean, I remember even in the 60s, you know, as a young person. I know that uh, uh, the, the, the uh, people, whether educated or uneducated or whether rich or poor, particularly in fact the poor, especially on the voting day, would feel that it's their day. And uh, you know, uh, if like my father would try to influence uh, uh, our milkmen, let's say, uh, you know, uh, they would be very aware of their rights. So you know. Uh, I remember one time uh, <laughs> that uh, uh, because my father would uh, uh, very much uh, identified with the Congress party and our milkman, you know, he was trying to convince him that uh, um, vote for the Congress and he was going to vote for a different party. And so he said, yeah, yeah, you know, told my father, went outside the house and he says, I'm going to vote to this other party, you know, this, this uh, so, so, they, people had their independent uh, minds. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that I find. Um, uh, Do you think that culture is cultivatable in the sense that, you know, if, if you give, gradually give people more voices, you. Oh, absolutely, uh, I think so. I, because, you know, this, this ultimately, uh, the, the, the empowerment that comes with it, uh, and which is why, look, you know, if you think about it, right, all the theories uh, in political science basically will tell you that it's irrational to vote, right? Because what will your vote do? This is one vote. Whether you vote to the winner or the loser, unless the margin is uh, just one vote. Doesn't make the difference. Uh, your vote doesn't make a difference. <laughs> and yet, look at the massive numbers in which uh, the voters vote come to vote in India. Uh, I mean, in the current ongoing election, uh, the, the, the proportions are hovering around 67%, which is, I think, better than the United States. Yes, yes. So, <laughs> you can it's see incredible, him. Right? It's incredible. It is incredible. You mentioned how right after uh, the British people left, uh, India didn't immediately have a free market system, didn't immediately... Uh, have yeah, the, I think right? the, it was we, a long transition. Yeah, no economics. We got it all wrong. Uh, it's uh, an autarky, authoritarian. Yeah, well, I mean, not authoritarian, right? Politically, we were a democracy, right? And a 
from the beginning a vibrant one for that uh, at that you know i think on on that front we got it right i mean india got it right you know in terms of uh, uh, establishing universal suffrage uh, giving rights to everybody men women poor rich educated uneducated everybody was given the right to vote uh, all you had to be was uh, you had to be adult to vote uh, so it was adult suffrage uh, uh, but on the economic side, we got the model completely wrong. Uh, I think initial mistake is understandable because there was general agreement actually among economists and politicians and everybody, you know. And at that time, if you go back, look at 1950, uh, Soviet Union was supposedly a big success. Uh, they had done reasonably well actually from, you know, that vantage point. Uh, and uh, planning was every general agreement that planning was a good way to go about it. But and and so you could defend it actually in the 1950s. But you know by 1970 it was pretty clear that the model we had, India had chosen was just not working, and the the kind of growth that was required was not happening. And on top of that, we had also begun to see uh, the uh, other countries, Singapore, Hong Kong, South Korea, Taiwan, uh, which adopted a more outward-oriented policy and began to grow very rapidly. And, and by golly, by mid-70s, uh, late 70s, a lot of studies had already come out. Even in India, actually, there was a f very famous book, very thick book, uh, by Professor Jagdish Bhagwati and Padma Desai. Uh, this was a 1970 book which made a pitch actually for more liberal policies. And it was not, you know, by today's standards, it was not, you know, what you would call neoliberal economics or something, nothing of that sort. It, uh, it was even called actually that planning for industrialization. So it was planning for industrialization, right? So it was not. <laughs> Completely free market. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and even that was summarily dismissed in India, you know, nobody paid any attention to that book. It's only much later on uh, that uh, that book kind of uh, received its due uh, uh, for, for the wisdom it had carried. Uh, so this is where I think the big mistakes happened and because real reforms did not start till 1991, by which time actually China was already roaring. I mean, Chinese economy after 1980, it started uh, liberalized. Uh, you got the whole decade when it grew 10%. Yeah, just using the stats from your slides, I mean, India's GDP growth rate from the 60s to the 80s was 3.5%. That's it. And then in the 2000s, it picked up to 5.8%. And, and 2017, it was like 7.1%. It gradually took off. And India and China's per capita income curve was both pretty flat before the 80s. And in the 80s, as you mentioned, China really took off. Took off, yeah. And today you can see now the difference, right? 1980, if you compare per capita income in China and India, India is at least 10% ahead. So India's per capita income, if you check the World Bank data, data in the World Development Indicators at database, WDI database, uh, India's per capita income is easily 10% higher than China's. And look what has happened today. Um, you know, uh, uh, India is about still 2.6 trillion dollar economy. China is 12, 13, somewhere there. I don't know the exact figure, but it is in the double digits. Uh, and, and per capita income is probably close to 10,000 in China. India is still about 2,000 or so. 
Well, so what about the next step? Because there are, I guess, two voices. One is saying uh, you can, developing countries have, can have this leapfrog effect, right? Countries like Africa or right, even India, they could really borrow the experience and technology that previous countries have already tried on, and they could really quickly catch up. And there's the other theory that says, you know, as things like artificial intelligence, uh, you know, really catch up, it would only be sort of America or China that are already advanced countries that will keep growing faster and faster, and it will be impossible for uh, countries to catch up uh, when they're initially left behind. You see, now, certainly there is leapfrog effect. Uh, there is no question. If you adopt good policies, right, in terms of growth, uh, take for example, you know, telecommunications revolution, right? If you go back to mid-1990s, India's telecommunication system is so archaic that you feel that, you know, how is it going to happen? Like the Till as late as 1999, you got three telephones per hundred population. Three telephones per hundred population. How is it going to, right? And back another 10 years and you got, you know, uh, 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 by 2010, uh, the, the, the density has gone to something like 75 per hundred or some very large number. I don't know the exact number, but it's a very large number. Certainly, easily one to two telephones per family, you know. So, you can, in this sense, you know. Likewise, take the broadband. In the sense of China or America, India never really proliferated enough uh, 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 computers and laptops to, to uh, uh, expand uh, its uh, broadband. Then came along smartphones. And now everybody is going to smartphones. Already, you know, in, in, in India, you got uh, almost, uh, again, some large number, 400 to 500 million people have smartphones. So that's, that, again, is a very large number, and you leapfrog. So in this sense, leapfrogging happens. But if you start later, even when you're growing much faster, catching up with the per capita incomes of the advanced countries is very difficult. That's what you said, the base. Base right? is very important. Base is very important. But I guess the issue is if China's growth rate slows down from 6.5% to 5%, that seems to be like a only 1.5% decrease, but I think people really feel the pain, right? Yes. I mean, you, the, the, the effect will still be quite detrimental. Yeah. Uh, but you see, the thing is that once your incomes have reached a certain level, uh, uh, you at least have all the comforts of life and you feel that well it's not you know growing according to my expectations but it's still not I got bad. all the all the necessities comforts of life in the United States think of it that uh, we think of three percent growth as pretty good uh, 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 and that's because the base is so large in India on the other hand if we think of three percent growth it's a complete disaster because it looks like no change. It, you know, when the economy grows 3%, hardly any change is observable because the base is so low. And you are trying to come out of the basic, basic abject poverty. Uh, so you need to grow much faster. Uh, but luckily, if your income is low, you can, with good policies, you can grow 
much faster. You can grow 8, 10 percent, uh, you know, because uh, you have so much to catch up in terms of technology and efficiency that you can, what you call leapfrog, you know, you can do that through catch up. Do you think India has good policy right now, relatively saying? Well, compared to what it was prior to before 1990, huge progress, huge progress. But I think there is still a, a lot of things which uh, are the leftovers of the socialist era uh, that the policies that still need correcting. And in addition also, I think some of the policies that India adopted uh, from 2009 to 2014, there was another five-year period during which uh, some of the policies were what I would call the kind of, you know, socialist era kind of policies that got put in place. So they also need to be changed a bit. Uh, what were some of those policies? Were the, how did they impact the people? So like, you know, uh, there is a land acquisition law which uh, uh, is, is very, which makes it very difficult for the government to acquire land. Uh, uh, and when you can acquire, you still, uh, the price of land that you acquire is very high. So if you want to build roads, railways, you need land and that makes the public projects very, very expensive uh, and also very difficult because they take longer time because of the law, the acquisition takes time. Uh, so likewise, our uh, there, there was a right to education act that was introduced in 2009 and that also ultimately, you know, uh, is not a very uh, kind of uh, education friendly law particularly in terms of quality of education. Um, but isn't things like the land acquisition law kind of like protecting private property, letting the government having a harder time to acquire land? Yeah. Isn't that kind of... But there is a the happy people? balance. There has to be happy balance, right? Because particularly if you're acquiring land for public projects, right? That is, that is for people, right? Uh, and so the, 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 the rights, private rights of the people and rights of the public as a whole have to be balanced. So it is true, you are absolutely right, you know what you're thinking. The old law that existed in India was lopsided on the other side, where the government could very easily acquire people's land. And so this law to some degree was a reaction to that, but then it went too far uh, on the other side. Gotcha. And, and particularly in India, you see the, this, is, this becomes a particularly serious problem because the land rights in India are not very well defined. Uh, there are no, uh, you know, uh, 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 uncontestable ownership titles to land or to dwellings, to housing that exist. Like in the United States, for example, if you buy a house, you own that place and there is a legal title you have. Uh, in India, you don't have that. Anything, any piece of land can always be contested whether uh, you are the rightful owner or not. And then it's up to the courts, you know, the courts will give you the verdict whether you own it or you don't own it. Uh, so, so this is a very serious difficulty. Uh, so for, you know, suppose an industrialist wants to start a big industry and needs 100 acres of land for that. It's very difficult to acquire, to, to purchase 100 acres of land where there is no dispute somewhere on the land, right? You are trying to acquire a contiguous piece of land which is 100 acres and you have to pull in a lot of smaller pieces of land to get this 100 acres contiguous piece. But parts of the pieces that are in there are under some sort of dispute. 
So this is where the, then the government has to step in a bit and say that, okay, I'm going to acquire it and settle the matter. So, so these are the kinds of things, you know, where now the new land acquisition law makes, makes it much more difficult. What about the other reforms the current Modi administration has taken on? I mean, I know there's things related to the currency, uh, you know, also some people say it's for anti-corruption purposes and other I know, I, will, concerns, I sort right? of support that too, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that this, that this uh, the, the demonetization as we call it, where uh, about 86% uh, of the currency in very high denomination notes or bills. Uh, of I think 500, 500 and a thousand. 500 and a thousand, right, yeah. So they were uh, discontinued as legal tender. Uh, and uh, th this has been, I think, you know, the policy of the Modi government, which has been attacked the most. Um, but uh, well, what's your stance on this? My stance on this is that if you feel that you want to fight corruption, then this had to be one of the steps to take. So you can, if you argue that, well, you know, at this stage, it's not necessary to fight corruption, then it's a different story. But if you think that corruption is something that India ought to be fighting at this stage, then I think, you know, you, you had to, this had to be, and this was only one of the many steps that the Modi government has taken. Uh, uh, and and uh, because, uh, not today, for, for instance, the impact, you know, the real estate prices, which is where a lot of the black, you know, the, 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 the this uh, sort of uh, uh, black wealth exists, is real estate. So now, you know, the, 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 not only the existing wealth has fallen because the real estate prices fell after the demonetization, uh, but also additional new uh, uh, black money going into real estate has declined. Because today, at least in Delhi, I, I'm told, I talked to several people, so it's, it's, it's not a you know, some, something that is imagined, it's for real, that in the past, if you wanted to actually do a transaction in real estate, where you wanted to give, you wanted to make the entire payment by check or through bank transfers, you couldn't do it. Because they, nobody wanted to accept the entire price of the property you were buying uh, officially they would take 20%, 30% officially, and the rest of it would be in cash. Today, actually, the, everybody is doing transactions in full, in uh, officially, meaning, therefore, you can do a write a check, you can do a bank transfer uh, with full record. Uh, not as much cash. Like not as before, much cash. Right. So, therefore, you're not evading the taxes, right? The whole idea was that, you know, you were trying to evade certain taxes or uh, often uh, also the income that you could not otherwise account for. Uh, uh, you, you, so, so therefore, you would give, try to give in cash. But, but now, I think the, the real estate transactions actually are taking place, at least in Delhi, I'm, I've talked to several people uh, uh, officially, and people are paying their taxes. So the big change you know, in the behavior has also happened as a result. And therefore, the additional wealth Black wealth going into real estate has declined. Oh, what about how certain people criticize it for not being well executed? You know, a lot of people didn't get their money in in time. It was not very well coordinated. I, I, I think those criticisms are well taken. Uh, that that you know, 
as it unfolded, it, now in retrospect we could say that uh, it could have been done better. Uh, in a way, it's like you know uh, we are doing this podcast, and when you hear it back, or I hear it back, <laughs> I, I might go back and say, "Gee, I could have handled this a little differently," <laughs> or I could have put it differently, or you might think that microphone should have been put in a different way. <laughs> But the general intention. Or the general trend, because you know anything. Once you have seen happen, you know you know that uh, yeah, these are the things which I could have done differently and better. Uh, 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 that is true with anything, and it is true with demonetization also. Uh, that uh, a few other things, as it unfolded, could have been done a lot better. But it's generally effective overall. But but the general uh, my take is is that you know if you want to fight corruption, then this was one of the things you needed to do. And by the way. You know, contrary to a lot of people making all these claims uh, 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 that somehow it was a draconian thing, people did not think that it was draconian. People quietly and calmly stood in their lines, and you know, the lines remained for about three months or longer. Uh, but people calmly stayed. You know, uh, 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 there was not a riot in a single place. So politically, people appreciated that the prime minister was doing, trying to do something. Uh, which was good thing for the country as a whole. Uh, otherwise, you would see that you know anybody who has to you know for several days go and stand in line to get cash. Uh, you would see a bit of uprising against it, but uh, none of that happened. Interesting. What are some of the other reforms that that we've seen that you particularly think uh, are effective? I think. I mean, there are two of these which uh, were done in the last five years, uh, uh, which are very important reforms: uh, uh, the insolvency and bankruptcy code, and the goods and services tax okay. (GST). Those two. But even between those two, I would say that you know, in the longer run, the insolvency and bankruptcy act is probably. The most important one. What is it specifically? So, so you know, for all these years, India did not have a, a proper, really, you know, modern bankruptcy law, and so therefore, whenever a business went into losses, closing it down and winding it up completely was very, very difficult. You know, it'll take twenty years, sometimes twenty-five years. Uh, And as a result, all these assets will get tied up, and 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 the fear of that, of course, also deters other investors to invest. So unless they are hundred percent sure that you know for ten, fifteen years, I this business will be successful, you don't want to touch it because you know once you get in, getting out is very difficult. So now this is this insolvency uh, uh, and bankruptcy code is a very powerful, very uh, effective. Uh, Which has you know all time-bound exits, uh, uh, and and so this is like in the United States, you know that in so many days you take this step, next so many days you take that step. Uh, it's laid out, and lot of uh, uh, winding of businesses is happening uh, already. Uh, very some several successful, very big cases have been resolved under this act. Uh, so this is, I think, going to really change in a big way. Uh, 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 the attitudes of the business uh, towards entry, because if you can exit, then entry uh, becomes uh, worthwhile. That look, you know, at the end of the day, if business doesn't work out, there is a way to exit. 
and the goods and services tax and the goods and services tax uh, uh, and now uh, from efficiency standpoint that is a very important tax also because india had these large number of these indirect taxes uh, and different states had different taxes central government had its own taxes uh, now on any given commodity more or less there is a single tax nationwide now there is still things work to do in, on goods and services tax because there is still multiple rates of taxation meaning that you know like clothing may be taxed at one rate steel may be taxed at another rate automobiles may be taxed at another rate so there is a bit of multiple tax rates uh, i think this these all can be consolidated eventually into two tax rates you can't go to one one is difficult some countries have a single uh, a tax but i think for india it will require two tax rates uh, so but but that i think is a secondary reform the big reform is having the same tax rate nationwide on any given commodity and that the goods and services tax accomplishes interesting how how was your experience with the uh, modi administration what because you i uh, mentioned from 09 to 14 there were some socialist policies that were implemented and then 14 onwards in the past 5 years we're seeing a little bit more economic progress so how do you observe the 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 recent economic reforms uh, that have taken place in India and how the Modi administration approached it yeah so you know i went there precisely because i uh, saw the possibility that uh, uh, modi government will uh, do reforms uh, and some of those we were able to do uh there were also some that i had hoped we will do but didn't get far enough uh, i mean one of the big areas uh, in which i was writing was labor laws uh some progress got made i think people don't realize it i mean one of the very important changes that the modi government brought in in the area of labor laws was the introduction of a fixed term employment uh so whereas under the old laws anybody who worked for a year had to be made permanent for life pretty much and then you couldn't fire repeatedly lay off those workers now there is a law in place which uh, or rule in place which allows uh, a company to hire workers for 2 years 1 year 3 years whatever so they can choose the length of the contract and at the end of the contract if you feel that you don't need this worker you can let them go so that was a big important change that was made but there was a still lot of other labor laws that still require uh, reforming uh, that uh, did not make progress for instance but then there were other areas in which i did not think that action would happen and action did happen so at the same time you know uh, well, for example what is uh, one of the areas i thought you know which is not the reforms area but uh, social policy area is this whole swachh bharat Uh, mission that the prime minister launched this is uh, translates as clean india campaign and uh, one of the important components of clean india campaign was to uh, ensure that every household has a toilet uh, because india has this has uh, had for a long time this major problem of open defecation uh, and uh, uh, you know when this program was announced only 38 or 39% of indian households in rural areas had toilets today uh, the official figures are that 99% of the rural households have toilets that's a huge thing i i, I mean in, in a long term sense you know if you think in terms of the uh, 
health of the people, longevity of the people, uh, this is going to be something that will impact in a big way. Also, I think a part of the, as a part of the Clean India campaign, so this is one component, but also there is a whole campaign to clean up Indian cities, Indian villages, you know, the general environment outside you. Uh, Indians have, you know, we Indians has, uh, have this habit of clean, keeping our houses inside very clean, <laughs> but then we take the trash out and put it outside. <laughs> so it creates, you know, outside you, you, you go out and you see uh, these uh, dumps of uh, trash, right, they, they don't get removed. So habits have to be changed and uh, uh, the Prime Minister really took big initiative on this. And you can see today actually in, after five years, you see a major impact on the cities. Uh, they are not, you know, as clean as uh, many of the cities uh, in, in the United States might be. But they are getting there at least uh, to become competitive with New York. <laughs> because New York also I can see occasionally uh, uh, dumps of trash uh, here. Uh, uh, so, so we are still, you know, I, I think there is work in progress. But definitely a big difference today. So. This is one example where you know I'd not uh, uh, at least I'd not thought yeah I'd not foreseen that this was something that could actually be done or that would actually be done, but the prime minister launched it. Digitization was another area where when uh, at least you know I had not thought through this that this could turn out to be so important, uh, and uh, I was actually also involved uh, uh, soon after demonetization uh, from the Niti Aayog we were. Uh, then pushing this whole digitization, there was a committee that the Prime Minister had appointed which was housed at, at Niti Aayog and we sort of uh, uh, worked out a lot of the policy measures to, to uh, promote digitization. Uh, so there is another thing you know uh, that uh, certainly when I went there, I, I had not uh, thought of as an important reform to, to, to push for. So that is another example. You mentioned uh, Niti Aayog, which, which was the National Institution for Transforming India, and you held the rank of a, a cabinet minister. So, you, how was that experience working there, and what was primarily the role of the, the institution? Uh, yeah, so 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 this was very interesting, you know. So uh, before Niti Aayog or the National Institution for Transforming India, uh, there was the Planning Commission. So this this institution was a successor institution of the Planning Commission, uh, and uh, 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 so so when when I accepted this job, you know, I uh, asked the predecessor, the, you know, the person who uh, was in my place in the Planning Commission, uh, what his advice was, and he said, well, it's a big challenge. So <laughs> so and he had run it done it for ten years. So so I I was a little kind of. Uh, uh, worried when I went, uh, but uh, because you know we had to also establish the new institution. But I think right, we. I'm very pleased actually with the outcome that we could take the challenge. Uh, Was and, it more and, like a and so the institution has been now very is very different. At least when I left it, uh, there was uh, you know like uh, the major activity of the planning commission was to write five-year plans. That was the most important thing they did. But now the five-year plans were discontinued. Uh, instead, we put, uh, I, I had sort of piloted uh, something called a three-year action agenda, so which was not a plan, but there was a very policy reforms, number of reforms that in, in all the areas we pulled together in this document. Uh, there was one of the many things that we did, uh, but we also pushed privatization from uh, Niti Aayog. Uh, we also put, so privatization, we made some progress, uh, 
35 uh, of these public uh, sector enterprises uh, we analyzed and then recommended that they should be privatized. Cabinet approved those, uh, but I think now the process is back on track. But uh, I had hoped that some of these privatizations would happen while I was still there, but, but uh, uh, the ministry or the department which needed to make that progress uh, really didn't move. But, but now I think there's a lot of movement that is happening, so we'll see something will happen. But in parallel, we had also started from the Niti Ayo, the closure of many, many sick units. So in India, you know, in, in no other country, you'll probably hear a term called sick public sector enterprises. But uh, this is probably unique to India because uh, I mentioned to you earlier that um, closing down the enterprises, uh, winding up the enterprises is a very difficult thing in India. And especially if these are enterprises in the public sector, those become even more difficult to wind up. So as a result, in India, you've got a large number of these enterprises which are not manufacturing anything anymore. No economic activity is happening, but the enterprises are kept alive. Uh, uh, so we call them sick. They're really dead enterprises, if you ask, uh, in a literal sense. You know, they're really dead in the sense they're not producing anything. But we call them sick and we uh, keep them alive. So that takes away the taxpayers' money because you're paying salaries to the employees uh, uh, and there may be other expenditures that are being incurred uh, with no corresponding output coming out. So I started out that let's start closing these down. Prime Minister supported it very much. So as a part of that, in this case, at least a dozen or so enterprises have been closed down. Uh, and that actually improves efficiency a great deal because a lot of these enterprises had a lot of land. That was their main asset. You know, everything else was pretty much depreciated, depleted uh, no longer. But they have a lot of very valuable land. Now, this land can eventually come back on the market. And, and that helps. So, so that was a successful thing we were able to do. Let's talk about privatization a little bit just before getting into the closure of uh, sick units. How do you go about a privatization of a state-owned enterprise? I mean, okay, so 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 the process is, uh, you know, if the enterprise is listed uh, on the stock exchange, then of course it's relatively straightforward. Then you say, well, what is the government's uh, equity in in this? Uh, usually, if the government is the owner, it has to have more than fifty percent equity in in the enterprise. So the easiest way is to, you know, uh, uh, sell off the, the equity or the sell of the shares to the point that the government's uh, equity falls below 50%. And then a board can be established to run the enterprise. Uh, and eventually the government can sell the rest of the equity also. Immediately probably is not a good idea because typically what happens is that once you privatize and a board is established to run the enterprise, uh, uh, meaning a privatization effectively happens, stock market value rises. And so if the government uh, still holds on to a part of the stocks, it can then maximize the value. Uh, so that's one way. Uh, sometimes the uh, enterprise may not be listed, uh, in which case uh, uh, there are two options. Either you list it first and discover what the price is and then follow up the process that I just described. Or you can take the enterprise and say, okay, let's not list it. Let's get it evaluated. 
and then you start auctioning. So the, then you sell the entire enterprise. So some buyer from the private sector might come in, uh, they would bid uh, and you run a competitive auction and then you change the hands. Interesting. What's the rationale behind privatization? Because I, I mean, you've always talked about the path of China and China privatized many state-owned enterprises back in the 90s and they did it very efficiently and effectively. Um, so so why, why do we need to privatize those companies? Ah, you see, the, 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 the philosophical uh, basis of this is simply that, look, you know, uh, uh, the government should do should engage in activities that involve uh, public interest, right? So these are, if, if the if public interest, meaning it, it, it uh, is in the interest of the, a large body of the people, uh, uh, and it's not a private kind of uh, interest. A uh, lot of the manufacturing enterprises that, like, you know, producing steel or producing whatever, you know, the telephones or what have you, this is a purely privately profitable activity which the private sector can do. Uh, uh, unlike, uh, for example, building roads, for instance, uh, that's more of a close, much closer to a public sector kind of activity in the sense that, you know, uh, uh, it is for the good of all the people uh, who would use the road and no individual is going to build that road. So the government has a role to play. Uh, so, so that is the idea. And, and the, the, the reason you want uh, activities that are purely of private interest, uh, which are privately profitable, uh, is, is that uh, they are then subject to the market pressure, commercial pressures, uh, uh, competition. Uh, whereas if you have an enterprise in the public sector, it doesn't compete in the way that a private sector enterprise competes or in the way that it ought to compete. Because uh, if you're making losses, the government basically uh, foots the bill, which is meaning the taxpayer foots the bill. Uh, so a uh, lot of the enterprises keep making losses year after year, and yet they're not closed down. If this happened in the private sector, the entrepreneur, uh, the, the lenders will ask for their uh, uh, money back, yeah. and uh, it will have to be closed down. So. Uh, in effect, you know, uh, uh, that enterprise is serving no public purpose, uh, and yet it is taking away the taxpayer's money. Uh, that's actually unfair to the taxpayer. So that is really the rationale that, you know, uh, 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 and, and, and particularly, as I mentioned to you, that a lot of these enterprises in India for decades, which have been loss-making, which have been closed down, I mean, sorry, not closed down, making losses, but they are being kept alive. This shouldn't happen because you're using taxpayers' money to pay all the workers. Uh, you should close them down, pay, uh, give the uh, uh, workers the compensation, and close it. So that's one of the things I tried, I did, and almost more than a dozen enterprises we managed to close down while I was at Niti Aayog. Is there any downside to privatization? Uh, for example, uh, there's a lot of political, I guess, pushback in China these days when. President Xi tried to privatize more state-owned enterprises or make them more efficient, and people sort of realize, oh, there's still, you know, big employers employs thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people, and uh, still drives the economy in, in very, very significant ways. So when you try to privatize them, it, 
sometimes it doesn't make them more efficient per se, but it's just a lot of political backlash. Uh, okay, so political backlash, let me come to. But as far as efficiency is concerned, so India has had one experience that uh, uh, the Vajpayee government uh, uh, in in last two or three years of its tenure, uh, so maybe from 2001 to 2004, uh, they privatized a number of uh, public sector enterprises. Today they are uniformly doing much better than they were doing then. They are also doing much better than some of the other enterprises which had been identified for privatization but were not actually privatized. So the economic and, and as far as employment is concerned, employment, all the studies tell me. Uh, so I got a study done actually as a part of one of my big projects uh, some three or four years ago. Uh, employment did not fall at all. Uh, so it's, it's all win-win as far as the, the uh, uh, economic outcome of the enterprise uh, was concerned. Really? But is, shouldn't there be overcapacity? I mean, you also you said... See, you see, what happens typically is that the efficiency improves the private sector because they have to start responding to commercial pressures. Uh, and uh, uh, there is so much slack and all uh, in, the, in, in the running of the, 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 the unit efficiently that very quickly, you know, the, 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 the unit begins to grow. Uh, and, and any uh, detrimental impact that may happen initially that you might think would happen because, and then, you know, the, the layoffs will have to be done by the private owner. Uh, that's more than offset, actually, by the, uh, uh, by, by the improved efficiency. Uh, and so, net, there is no, there was no decline in, in, in the employment either. Uh, and, and if you look at the, performance, of course, that, that greatly improved. Uh, you know, so, so they try to compare with comparables, you know, so the, the, the units that uh, uh, were identified for privatization were ripe for uh, privatization but were not privatized. Compare those against the ones that actually got identified and privatized and you see the performance much better uh, in this case. Now, political uh, is, is, is a bit of, you know, the, the, a different kind of backlash happens. What happens is that the value of the enterprise in the private sector, once it is there, begins to rise. And within a short period, actually, the value in the market becomes much larger. So there are often allegations that uh, uh, the minister or the secretary who oversaw privatization uh, took bribes uh, and, and sold it for a low price. That is where you see the problem. This is, this is where the officials... Uh, are, are very circumspect. They, they sort of, you know, uh, this is why when I said, you know, that 35 of these units we had identified uh, for privatization, uh, the cabinet approved it, but the department which was supposed to privatize did not proceed. And part of the fear, whoever undertakes this uh, sale of the enterprises uh, is, well, you know, tomorrow there will be allegations that I sold it for low prices and people will go to the court and all. So I don't want to take that responsibility. Uh, I just drag the process. Uh, and in another two years, I'm no longer, I, I've retired, I'll be retired. So it's a problem with the next guy. So, so that is how the kind of process gets slowed down because of these fears. So there's a top level corruption. That's what, one well, big part. We don't, no, no, the problem is not so much that, that there, there's probably no corruption. But there are allegations of corruption. 
and, and you substantiate it by saying that look you know they sold it for x and today the value is 5x. So obviously they took some bribe, they knew that they it, 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 got you. Well, and, well, and so therefore they fixed the, the auction or whatever, you know. Which might not always be the it case. It might not be happening at all, yeah. Yeah, no, they actually, you know, the people who did the sales, uh, the, the one from 2001 to 2004, these were people of integrity. And personally, I don't believe that uh, 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 they took any bribes to undersell these things. And they knew of the risks, so actually they took a huge risk in doing this. Uh, and, and in this sense, I think, you know, those who bring in these charges all the time for political reasons do a disservice to the country. Because the next guy is very careful that, you know, uh, uh, I'll not do it, let the next guy do it. So, you know, it slows down the uh, reform process. But doesn't privatization reduce the interest uh, in the existing stakeholders, I guess, in the government, in the, in the, in the public sector? I mean, you said it's a win-win situation, but sometimes it probably isn't, right? I mean, intuitively... But so, Somebody so, got to lose out in, in this process. No, 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 right? no. It can be win-win. But, but the, 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 the condition I always laid down when we identified these enterprises for privatization was the question, bottom line question we had to ask was, does the enterprise serve a public purpose? If the enterprise serves a public purpose, then there is a good economic case for it to be kept in the public sector. But if it serves no public purpose, and whatever this enterprise is doing can be done by the private sector with no damage to the public interest at large, then it should be privatized. So that was the criterion I applied in identification of these, you know. Uh, uh, so, so not everything, you know, like railways, for example, uh, is in, in, in the public sector. And I don't expect railways to go into private sector for quite some time to come. Uh, but at the same time, if you're manufacturing steel, aluminum, or some other product, that activity can be done and should be done in the private sector. And taking that to the private sector harms nobody's public interest. Because the public service is not what this enterprise is doing. It's simply producing a, a private uh, a commodity. It's not producing a public service. It's producing a private commodity. In, in the economist sense, you know, public versus private goods as we talk of. Uh, uh, and it should then be done by the private sector. Because then they respond to the commercial pressure. Whereas when it is done in the public sector, there is no commercial pressure. Because in the end, if the uh, unit goes into losses, taxpayer will foot the bill. Interesting. <laughs> Got you. Well, I mean, when we talk about privatization, uh, one country that comes up in the mind is the United Kingdom, right? The UK did a huge wave. Mrs. Of, Thatcher. Exactly. Yes. I mean, the, the neoclassical economics or, or neoconservative wave of privatization. How, how do, you, do you think there was uh, some lessons for India? Absolutely. No, I think, you know, the, 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 in the end, uh, uh, the, uh, Prime Minister Thatcher, uh, uh, decided, felt that, you know, uh, there are a lot of things that the public sector was doing, we shouldn't be doing. Coal mines, for example, were in the public sector at the time, she privatized those. And those, I think, were right decisions. Uh, 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 and, uh, uh, and the railway as well, right? And, and the railways, yeah. 
So, so exactly you see. So, uh, now in the Indian case, it is a little different. Uh, I think railways, you know, because also uh, in India, the lot of the railway passengers are poor people and so generally railways uh, try to keep the uh, fares uh, relatively low even if it means having to give some subsidy from the uh, from, from the uh, government budget. Uh, so, so railways I think is very low on uh, in the Indian context I think uh, uh, it is nowhere near uh, uh, the, the frontier of privatization. I think that, that railways will for a while stay. In, in railways I think uh, uh, what we still need to think in terms of is corporate, corporatization. Uh, stay in public sector, but corporatize uh, them so that you know they at least if you break them up into four or five different corporations, they compete with each other even if they are in the public sector, uh, something like that. But uh, there are a lot of other th things that these public enterprise, public sector enterprises are doing. Steel, there are a lot of textile companies which are sitting in the public. So these are all sick companies, you know. They serve no public purpose. Yeah, but and when you close down those sick companies, don't the workers uh, protest? <coughs> right. And, and so, how do you mitigate so, that? So, for that there is a good system in India uh, which is called the, uh, uh, it is called VRS, uh, Voluntary Retirement Scheme. VRS. It is not so, it is not so voluntary in the sense that, but you know they are voluntary in the sense that you are offered basically, you know under that you pay them for their salary for the rest of their life pretty much. So they can go away with the salary and they can take another employment. So it is a good deal for the workers also. Um, so some, you know, uh, 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 sometimes it may be half of your remaining, it, it also depends a bit on how, how many years did you work for the company. So but, but it is generally the way India has tried to do it is by offering generous voluntary retirement schemes. But it has to be generous though, right? I think it has to be generous. Uh, so they try to do that. Uh, and, 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 and like in the sick units also that we have closed down, they have done it. I mean I mentioned to you a dozen or so sick uh, uh, companies have been closed down under the Modi government and uh, what you do is uh, give them acceptable VRS. Uh, because for the government still it is a better deal because otherwise you are going to keep giving them the salary anyway. And uh, uh, moreover you keep the rest of the burden and that land remains tied up in uh, the sick unit. So the, for the government actually for the taxpayer if you do not sell them off you, 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 there is a larger cost. I thought it would be much more complicated. I mean the process you described seemed to be so uh, smooth and intuitive. You go no, in and no, you privatize. It's, it's not, I mean, but it would be much more yeah. complicated, you know. Well, complications do arise. It it all depends on you know uh, on the specific circumstances of it. Uh, I remember I'll tell you for example, this was not even privatization, but at one point all tele fixed line telecommunications uh, uh, was given uh, service was provided by the government. So there was the Ministry of Telecommunications. So Ministry of Telecommunications was not only the policy makers for telecommunications, it was also a service provider. And when the reforms began to happen, they figured that they part of the, one of the reforms component was corporatization 
of the service arm. And the service arm was employing some maybe two to three hundred thousand people. What do you do? Now that's where you know the, uh, there's a lot of opposition because uh, the workers thought that you know once it's corporatized, their jobs will become vulnerable, or uh, their salary increases will become uh, will slow down. Uh, so so there was a lot of apprehension. So at the time, eventually, I think one of the things the government did was to offer all the workers a free telephone, fixed line telephone, and 180 calls per month free. That was one of the big perks that the government offered them. And they said, you know, that your job will be preserved. So they gave them the job guarantee also. Because it was still going to be a public sector company, except that they wanted to hive it off the government, you know, so go and become separate corporate corporation which then has to compete with the uh, private sector also. So that's how this was then done. It was a very difficult, I mean, so, you know, when you th say, uh, is it always so easy? No, it's not always so easy. And the workers do, by the way, they, they do protest, there's no doubt. Uh, but I tell you, sometimes actually it is the CEOs of the public sector enterprises who protest even more. Because the CEOs have a good life. CEOs they don't want to lose companies. control, right? They don't want to lose control. Ministries don't want to lose control. Yeah, exactly. So that's another form of political backlash, no, but, right? But, but that, that, on, on that one, the, the government can make a decision, take a decision, right? So I was tough. So I, I, would, I would hear everybody's case. So we, you know, when we would do it uh, in Nithiyayo, we would discuss it. Uh, but in the end, we took a professional call. But they must be forming a kind of alliance and then... No, no, no. Then they are all government employees, remember. The, the CEOs also are government employees in the end. Uh, and if the cabinet decides something, then it's the cabinet's decision. What, what the bureaucrats can then slow do is they can slow down the process. Exactly. Yeah, that happens. So this is why the, this is where the privatization becomes. But that's less a worker problem than a, a bureaucratic problem. Before you returned to uh, in, in, in India's government, uh, before you went to Niti Aayog, you were the chief economist at Asian Development Bank, and you went back to India to sort of help the administration. And I was having dinner with one of my Indian friends and some other friends that day, and he mentioned to me that uh, there, there's less of a culture in India of people going back to India to help out, quote-unquote. I mean, it's like if, if you study in the United States, you can just stay in the United States, you have a good family, you live a good life. It's less of a sense like after I complete my degree in the U.S. or I become successful in this career, I need to go back to the country to help out. Do, do you agree with this comment? What do you so, think? so first of all, in my case, you know, it was not at all an issue of me helping them out. I think, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the Prime Minister but, Modi but, but and you felt like a his, people, his people are quite capable. So, you know, who am I to... <laughs> uh, I, I saw this as a great opportunity for an academic uh, because, you know, uh, and, uh, it, it is extremely rare that you get an opportunity at that kind of level. This was at the cabinet minister level and particularly remember that uh, uh, I'd been out of the country for 40 years. You need a, 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 a very uh, decisive uh, and confident prime minister to take that sort of risk because in a democracy political risks are large with that sort of thing that oh you know how is this man who has been out for 40 years in another country is going to serve the interest of India right so therefore the prime minister has to uh, 
take some risk there, which the Prime Minister uh, did. Uh, so that is how I see it. That you know, for me personally, it was a great opportunity, great, really almost a privilege to have been asked to do it. Uh, all I had actually was not that you know I want I'll go and help them out. It was more of an apprehension that you know what if I fail, uh, uh, and so uh, I, I was after three years when I returned, I felt at least uh, uh, quite good about the fact that I didn't. I, I certainly, you know, whether I succeeded or not is for somebody else to judge, but at least I can judge this much that I did not fail, uh, that we were able to uh, uh, reconfigure the new institution uh, and, and we could, could begin to deliver uh, uh, on many of the uh, fronts that the Prime Minister wanted to, uh, uh, wanted this institution to, institution to deliver. So, so I, I felt very good about that uh, and some of the reforms that I thought India should do and I tried to push. We got some success. In some areas we didn't get success, uh, which was all part of the game. Uh, so I, you know, and I would have certainly stayed longer uh, if my leave could have been extended. But, you know, the universities in the United States uh, uh, generally give leave for two years generally. Maybe, you know, can get some bit of extra time, which I did. But uh, uh, roughly that is what, and, and uh, for me to resign the job at, at, at Columbia would have been a difficult thing to do because, uh, uh, you know, at my age, you will not, uh, uh, universities like to hire younger people, but not the <laughs> older people. So, so for all those reasons, you know, I felt my wife also wanted to be back here. Uh, so for all those reasons, you know, I chose to come back. But. Certainly not out of any kind of dissatisfaction, and actually the sense of satisfaction was uh, enormous. So, how was the job in Asian Development Bank different from? Oh, very different. Yeah, that is very different because in the end I learned, and this is, I'd say this in retrospect, having served in the country, that, that the real action actually happens in the country. So, whether it is the Asian Development Bank or the World Bank or any other institution that is outside, uh, you think that you are making, you know, uh, you are having an impact and all. Often you are having your impact only within the institution, within the thinking of the, that institution, uh, if if that. Uh, but it is it, it, the, the the real actual policy change and real action happens in the country. So so now my advice, you know, for example, if some of the students come here and ask me whether I should be here or here, so if if your objective is to actually help bring about the change, then I think you've got to work within the country. I think the real action, real change happens in the country. Uh, are you thankful for your experience? In, oh, absolutely. Uh, but in other words, if you could go back to in your 20s right now, just finish your PhD or something, would you have chosen to theoretically go into the Indian government? Uh, and no, not? that's a difficult call. That's a difficult call because, you know, uh, 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 if I had done that, then I would have probably gone inside the bureaucracy and at 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 a, at, a, at a lower level and then risen through the ranks. I don't I, I, I don't think that would have been a better model. I I, I think um, uh, uh, for for me at least uh, the the trajectory as it unfolded worked out well. I didn't plan it that way, uh, but uh, the way it, it worked out, the way it unfolded was was quite right for me. Also, I I, I think I should I should say this that uh, I would also like to think that as an academic, uh, particularly when I started writing about reforms in India, 
and, and especially in the press. See, in India, uh, it is very difficult to advance the ideas through what we call the scientific writings. Uh, scientific writings uh, are… Economic journals or… Uh, or yeah, you, know. you see th th those are useful for advancing your own career. I think within the profession, you know, without journal publications uh, in the United States, particularly in the area of economics, there is no go. I mean, we have to publish in the professional journals, American Economic Review, Quarterly Journal, Econometrica, uh, International Economic Review, all these. Uh, which is what I did for, you know, uh, a large part of my career. Uh, I had to prove myself to my own peers. Uh, but when it comes to having policy influence in India, a lot of the, uh, what carries weight is, in your reputation helps you, but you have to convey the ideas in, in, in the language that they would understand. And that's, that happens in the press writings. So I had been, I've been writing in the Indian press for almost 20 years now. Uh, and, and so I would like to think that through those writings also, I helped change some people's minds, uh, which I could not have done if I had, as a young PhD, gone into the government and then progressed through the system. Uh, so, so, so there's a different role I played uh, being outside, uh, uh, and, and, and I think that was important. And, and that role I still continue to play. I still write, you know, now that I've worked in the government already, uh, that gives me uh, a degree a, of freedom. Uh, well, freedom, but it also gives me a leg up. That now, perspective. You know, now uh, it gives me the perspective how to exactly try to explain to the policymakers. Uh, it, it, it also gives me a bit more credibility with the, those who are actually making policy that I'm speaking from some experience. And so, so, so I, in, in some ways, I think, you know, one can think that perhaps the influence of the writings perhaps is a bit more now than it would have been uh, uh, before I worked for the government. So again, there's no correct path in terms of where to go first, but you kind of have to keep in the back of your mind that if you go to this route, there are certain advantages and disadvantages, and if you go into academia, you probably won't make as much policy impacts, and if you go into the policy impact, you, you rose through your ranks in a different way. So it's just different. Absolutely, yeah. And, and you know, for different people, there's different paths, right? You know, so, so uh, uh, but for at least an applied, you know, international trade, which is my field, is basically an applied field. And so I feel that, you know, it, it should uh, have uh, uh, policy applications. Uh, and, and so uh, I sort of did eventually, you know, uh, even though earlier, my, you know, my earlier career I was a theorist, I did move into policy eventually. Uh, and now all I do is policy, I don't do very much of theory at all, uh, uh, which is okay. Uh, but you know, I think this is how, the, how as you mature as a scholar, uh, certainly uh, 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 is one way that, that you then begin to write for, it, this is an applied field, economics is not physics. Uh, and therefore, uh, ultimately, the responsibility is also to contribute to the policy. And, uh, and, and for me, it, it worked out that way quite nicely. Speaking of trade, your new book just came out. Free yes. Trade and prosperity. So, so that's yeah. Let's talk about it. I, I haven't got the chance to read it because it just came out. It just came uh, out. So, I, 
went on Amazon to try to buy it, and it says uh, you have to pre-order, and you have to, the shipping takes a while and everything. So I haven't got the chance to read it, but would you mind no, giving us a all. quick no. overview? Yeah, what did you write about it? So, so this is, the book is called Free Trade and Prosperity, uh, and the subtitle is uh, How Openness Helps Developing Countries Grow Richer and Combat Poverty. Uh, so, you know, uh, this is a defense of free trade, but with the developing countries at its center. So this is really, in a way, the first full-blown uh, 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 case that is made from the perspective, from the viewpoint of the developing countries. Uh, there are a lot of books that exist uh, which defend the case for free trade. Uh, there are a couple of classic ones, you know, very old ones. There's a 170-year-old book by a French author uh, called Frederick Bastiat, uh, uh, Economic Sophisms, a very famous one. So after that, uh, there is... Um, uh, uh, another book uh, by Henry George, uh, that's I think 1886, that's, with, that's the American uh, uh, who wrote this book. Uh, and this is very unabashed, uh, both of these are defenses of free trade policies. Uh, they take on to the protectionists uh, in, uh, head on. Uh, so I think something similar in, in, in modern times from the developed countries viewpoint we have uh, uh, Professor Douglas Alvin uh, at Dartmouth. So, so he writes uh, and he has written books uh, in modern times. Uh, Professor Bhagwati has written something on uh, in defense of globalization. It's not a book only specifically on trade, but globalization in general. But uh, I think this is the first book which uh, 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 makes the case or defends the case uh, for uh, outward-oriented uh, uh, free liberal trade policies. Especially for developing countries. For the developing countries. So, so that's the first kind of you know, distinguishing feature of the book. Um, and uh, so the book uh, uh, you know, uh, explains uh, uh, why you know, when we go back to 1950s, 1960s, you know, because developing ec economies is post-Second World War phenomenon. A lot of these countries were colonies, former colonies of uh, uh, one of the Western powers. And after Second World War, they began to become independent. And uh, uh, then they started choosing their paths to development. And uh, in the 50s and 60s, most of them chose the path of protectionism. And even the economists in those days said that this was the right path. Import substitution, uh, protection was the right way to industrialize. So in the book explains, you know, why this mistake got made. And how then, you know, uh, uh, countries like South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong, they went against the economists, uh, meaning they went contrary to the advice of the economists, uh, opened up their economies, and did spectacularly well. You know, I mean, these countries grew at 8 to 10 percent, which had never happened. You know, if you look at the past history, uh, uh, there is never uh, growth on a sustained basis at 8 to 10 percent ever before. So these countries really open up uh, a, a completely new era in the process of economic development. And then 70s, a lot of the economists began to study their uh, evolution, that how this happened. And that changed the conventional wisdom. Economists changed their minds. Originally, they were all thought that protection, while for the rich countries, free trade was good. And that is why we had the general agreement on tariffs and trade. America was opening, you know, carrying out these successive rounds to with the Euro European Union and Japan to open up the world economy. At the same time, developing countries were not a part of that opening up. They were 
it was believed that you know they needed some protection to industrialize but by the mid 70s lot of studies came out and say look you know what korea did what taiwan did what hong kong did and look at china and look at india they didn't do well at all by being protectionist uh, and so the whole conventional wisdom changed it switched 180 degrees and the economists then began to uh, uh, really say that well free trade is good for the developing countries also uh, and then there was backlash then we had you know a couple of very influential political scientists uh, followed by some economists who uh, went the other way because they started explaining they no no actually korea taiwan succeeded not because of free trade they actually succeeded by industrial policy uh, and targeted protection right for certain uh, industries so 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 there was this what we call you know the 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 new consensus got challenged uh, and so when i started writing this book uh, this is where the matter stood that you know people like danny rodrick uh, hajun chang uh, joy stiglitz these people had written uh, you know um, attacking the free trade view for the developing countries and uh, my book sort of now takes them all on uh, it it takes uh, one by one everybody's arguments uh, uh, that and they try to offer now. and 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 uh, answers that uh, they they are uh, incorrect in their uh, so what are we seeing today we're seeing trump uh, that, that's a little bit of like protectionist policy yeah. backlashing against uh, the sort of i guess inequality that free trade has created so how do we address yeah. inequality yeah so so, so now you, here you come so so it, so like my books are talk, talks about this that look you know the uh, for the developing countries uh, the the standard arguments for free trade are not quite enough because politically if you say there are these gains from trade that you specialize in the uh, correct products products of your comparative advantage and then you exchange uh, uh, that e e efficient exchange as we call it the ricardian theory of comparative advantage and all that's just not enough for the developing countries to be persuaded what you need to be able to tell them that look you know if you are open outward oriented you got a very large market that you can exploit that you can have large firms you know you can exploit economies of scale meaning that you can grow much more rapidly that growth itself could be say 10% instead of only 4% that is what you need and that's what grabs the attention and imagination of the politicians in the developing countries in the rich countries the debate is different so so in the in the in in, in my book you'll see that a lot of space is devoted to to uh, dissecting whether freer trade or outward oriented policies give rise to faster growth or not uh and do they help combat poverty or not so the focus is growth and poverty in the developed countries as you just said very true that inequality is is much bigger issue that somehow there is this sense that you know trade has led to increased inequality my personal view is that it's not it's not trade uh, actually it's it's the way the technology has evolved there's a big debate uh, on on this issue and i've written quite a bit on this also being a trade economist uh, 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 and and it's really the fact that you know progressively uh, what has happened is that uh, the the technology has shifted demand from you know unskilled to the skilled workers for almost anything you do today you required skilled labor 
And so this shift in demand towards skilled labor is what is pushing the wages of the skilled labor further up. And so the premium on skilled labor continues to rise uh, and, 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 it, and the demand for the unskilled worker has, has uh, uh, continuously on, on the decline and that sort of opens up this big gap between how the wages of the skilled are rising and how the wages of the unskilled are not rising. Uh, so and you mentioned redistribution doesn't work. Yeah, there's doesn't nothing work. to redistribute. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> too many to distribute to and too few from whom to distribute. So how yeah. do you handle it? So you have to grow the pie. So this is where I think, you know, the for, uh, growth and therefore poverty uh, eliminate, that is much more central. Although, you know, because the intellectuals, you know, work on both sides. And so they try to bring in all these issues from the developed industrial countries to the poor countries. Uh, uh, my own view is that that's just, you know, superimposing what is going on in the debates here onto those other countries. I think for those countries, the bigger debate is whether poverty is being helped or not, how it is uh, reducing poverty. So which is why I focus in my book on, on poverty. Uh, but in, here in the rich countries, I think inequality is a big issue. Now, okay, so everybody was saying that trade is doing it, right? Now we have started protecting. Let us see if this reduces inequality. I bet you that you will not see any big impact on inequality uh, of this increase in protection and we'll finally learn that uh, uh, trade was not the cause of inequality. It is the technological shift that is inequality that is giving rise to this inequality. So, you know, I think good test is going to happen. Uh, 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 so, you know, there's an optimistic kind of positive uh, 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 twist that, that I'm giving to the, the actions that President Trump has taken uh, by uh, raising tariffs on, on, on Chinese. Uh, but a lot of people would say he also has political motivations, yeah, yeah. right? And, and that could be good. That could be Precis used to justify. Yeah, precisely. No, no. Here, in fact, in this case, we see the, the, uh, uh, the, the question you have to ask from that perspective uh, is what was his motivation, right? So uh, 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 my own reading of President Trump's action is that uh, he felt that uh, the, the Chinese markets were not as open as the, uh, the American markets are. And so he challenged them. And the underlying uh, 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 challenge or, or underlying objective for him is not to close American markets, but to open the Chinese markets. So he's saying, well, you know, you're not opening up. Here I'm going to punish. And I'm going to impose these high duties on your products. Either you open up or you suffer the protection on my side. So far, China has reacted by saying that, well, you punish me, I'll punish you. But in the longer run, it's possible that the two sides will come to the table and the new equilibrium that we'll get would open up Chinese market a bit more. So do, President Trump's ultimate objective might not even be just uh, closing down markets. Yeah, I, I don't think it is because the way he's putting it is that, look, you know, there are all these uh, issues with your intellectual uh, properties or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So, 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 so clearly he's trying to shift the equilibrium. And it's trying to shift the equilibrium in a way where Chinese markets will become more open than they are today. So does it mean that you, in certain ways, agree with President Trump's uh, policies, that he is not fully protectionism, but rather improving free trade? It, it, it may. No, it depends on the outcome. You see, it depends on the outcome. At the end, we don't know. You know, this is the, this is the risk you take. That uh, 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 what if China sticks to its guns? And so therefore, Protection remains uh, entrenched in both the places. 
who is going to blink right what if china doesn't blink you know will president trump then go in and say that okay you know just kidding will will uh, 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 remove some of our uh, tariffs and all so there is an you know so so right now there is a brinkmanship going on between the two sides and but it's too early for us to tell whether too, too early so too we can't just say president trump all bad this is no we can't say that we can't say that yeah i mean it's also it's the same thing also going on with the wto right because the president trump is also sort of challenging the existing wto rules because which, he's, which, he's, he's a bit dissatisfied with the current rules you know he says that uh, i think his uh, his complaint is which is not his alone his complaint his predecessors have complained about it also and both against china also uh, in a way you know president trump acted but the complaints were there under president george w bush under president obama those complaints against china if you look at the you know there uh, uh, every year there is a report that usdr files to the congress and if you look at those reports there are complaints against china continuously uh, uh, in, in those reports no difference is that president trump actually acted he just took the action uh, uh, but in the end i think the motivation really is that if the china if china would open its markets then of course the uh, uh, i would uh, expect every bit uh, the united states to reverse its uh, protection also I want to ask you a little bit more about a tra a tra trade economics um, because I do. I don't know if you know Professor Adam Tooze. He wrote this book called Crashed: uh, How Ten A Decade of Financial Crises uh, Changed the World. He's a professor here in Columbia, doing history of economics, yeah, yeah, intellectual history, and and I interviewed him, and he sort of wrote in his book that the traditional economic paradigm of national aggregates, uh, you know, trade surpluses, national accounts, that sort of diagram the paradigm is kind of outdated in analyzing the current financial system or, or the current world economy because what you end up seeing is big banks churning out large sums of uh, uh of assets on their balance sheets and and that's how financial crises are being and risks are actually being created and so so even though uh South Korea had a maybe a trade surplus against the US or had a, had a, had a national accounts surplus uh and and positive foreign currency reserve it still suffered from the financial crisis because so much of the balance sheet of the big banks uh were all tied up in in Wall Street and then when Wall Street didn't do so well the entire South Korean economy would collapse so do you so so how do you think trade economy trade economics Uh, do you think it, it, it should reinvent itself as a new field in, in economic studies? Good question. Studies? Yeah. Good question. So, so my take on this is the following: that uh, none of this impacts the case for free trade. Um, what what this tells you is that when you open your economy to the to to financial capital flows, you need to be a bit careful. so on that one i uh, uh, take the view that look you know um uh, usually i say that whenever you can do certain reforms go ahead do it because politically your windows often open with great difficulty and if you then say that oh first i should do this and then i should do that then reforms are very difficult but when you got the opportunity go do it uh, and then sort it out clean it up one reform i say you should wait till a long time is the opening of the financial capital i i think there are dangers there uh foreign direct investment that's quite fine 
even up to, I mean, even with portfolio investment when you are opening up, it's a bit of a hot capital. But still, I think, you know, up to that is fine. But when you start opening the asset markets completely, financial assets markets, that capital moves very rapidly back and forth. And it's also very responsive to what happens to the United States. So, you know, even when everything is going normal, I mean, what, what you were talking about more, uh, the crisis uh, uh, episodes, but even in normal circumstances, when the interest rates in the United States rise, capital bang, you know, leaves the emerging markets and, and uh, uh, rushes back to the United States. Uh, and, and, and that clearly creates an instability in your country. So, so there, that is where I, I, I draw the line that, look, you know, for financial capital flows, be careful. There's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, pull and push to, to, to open that market because often the interest rates abroad tend to be low uh, compared to your own country. And so, therefore, a lot of uh, pressure actually uh, to open up the financial capital markets so that you can go, go and borrow at the low interest rates. Uh, but uh, it is a double-edged sword. Uh, and, and I am sort of uh, of the view that uh, on financial capital, go very, very slow. Before we wrap up this uh, interview, I just want to ask your general sort of thoughts uh, for development economics, development finance, uh, or just the field of economic studies in general, like, how do you see the future of economics shape up? Because a lot of people say big data, machine learning, data analytics will sort of be the empirical, the future of empirical analysis for economics. And uh, you are sort of, I, I wouldn't say older generation of economists, but you are very successful in terms of uh, studying the trade, studying those traditional macroeconomic models, uh, national aggregates. So do you, are we seeing a, a revolution in? Yeah, so I, I personally believe in multiplicity of instruments, meaning that the, you know, as, as we advance, as technology advances, new methods uh, will evolve, new tools of analysis will evolve, uh, and, uh, data that we could not actually, uh, you know, analyze maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago, today we can analyze because the power to do the analysis, uh, the, the technical, sheer technical capacity is much larger today and all. Um, uh, uh, so, so, I believe in the multiplicity of instruments. I think from the development economics point of view, one of the dangers I see is that often what happens is that, uh, uh, you know, the, the the profession gets married to a particular uh, way of uh, uh, doing the analysis. Uh, and one of the things that has caught on in development economics is this randomized control trials, uh, RCT experiments. Uh, now, I personally think that that ought to be only one of the tools uh, in our bag. We ought to think uh, uh, of using other tools as well. Uh, but the profession often, you know, when uh, uh, some of the influential thinkers come in, they then, you know, in the journal article publications, etc., unless you did, you know, RCT or unless you had your uh, analysis foolproof so that, uh, you know, their identification uh, was 100% uh, uh, foolproof, journals will refuse to publish. 
that I think limits the, uh, the, 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 the kinds of questions you ask. So then, you, 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 then you are asking only questions to which you can answer using an RCT or only uh, you will frame the question based on the data you got which allow you to answer a particular question uh, uh, to, to uh, get your identification correct. I think that takes away the richness of the analysis. And in practice, uh, which is where I, I sort of had to also do during my three years in India, uh, you don't have the luxury of uh, getting full identification correctly, you know. I may go wrong, but I have to go by my instincts also. Uh, that you know what do data tell me does it um, on do i look correct uh, and then you have to take the policy decision uh, and and so you know if we uh, politics doesn't give you the luxury all the time of even running pilots sometimes you know you don't have the time you got the window you want, want to take the decision go with it or you wait for the pilot a year later the momentum may be gone so, so I, I, I think this is where from the at least practitioner's point of view, I feel that we have to be much wider uh, uh, accepting of, of alternative ways of thinking rather than, you know, uh, 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 just stick to one, one set of, of techniques or, you know, they, or insist on. Because, you know, when, if as a young, if I was a young economist today, I would have to put my all my energy is to ensuring that I ask the question that I can answer with 100% certainty, meaning my identification is correct, I do some sort of RCT and all. That limits what questions I can ask because uh, then, then the question is limited by the availability of the data or ability to conduct the experiment. Right? For example, you know, on free trade, I can't do a single RCT to <laughs> say, you know, is free trade good or bad. I have to know, I mean, even this whole issue of causation that goes on, uh, I mean, that's a debate in uh, trade literature with which I deal in, in my book, uh, uh, Free Trade and Prosperity, that look, you know, uh, uh, can I causally connect trade to faster growth or to higher per capita incomes, right? That's a difficult thing with the data. You know, people have tried to do and, and with at least uh, in, in a way that is, I find completely satisfactory. So I'm personally satisfied with it. But maybe you know those who do RCTs, they'll not be very uh, still fully satisfied. So, but then you got to <coughs> decide what the policy is going to be. So, so I I sort of lean therefore in favor of this multiplicity of instruments. Awesome. Uh, so the name of our show is Policy Punchline. I just want to ask you at the very end. So we talked for so long today. Uh, what is the punchline here for, for India, for policy making, free trade, uh, study of economics? What is the punchline here? So we, we had multiplicity of punchlines here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, um, you know, if, if you want a punchline for India, I, I think, you know, one of the things that uh, I would advocate is uh, that uh, uh, for India, it's extremely important uh, to get the policy regime right in such a way that the labor intensive industry begins to grow much faster, is able to capture the global markets, the export markets, because India needs this transition of the workforce out of agriculture into industry, because far too large a proportion of Indian workforce is in agriculture. And you know, if you have 45 percent of the workforce in agriculture, uh, which currently produces about 15% of the GDP, 
and that share is clearly predicted to be declining because the economy will grow at 7 8% agriculture will cannot grow more than 3% 4% and <coughs> in the best of the times at the national level so the share will continue to decline unless we take workers out of agriculture into industry and services we will not serve their interest well enough and for that the labor intensive industry which is what will create jobs for people with relatively limited skills uh, and with limited levels of education <coughs> is extremely critical so that i think is my punchline for india and you advocate for creating a zone in, in india that's like shenzhen which is like <coughs> a port city that that is very very uh advocated for free trade and you can bring those people in and create this economic zone right absolutely so those are the instruments how we can do it right so the question then where you are <coughs> referring to the zones i have uh, argued very much along those lines that india should also take advantage of its very long coastline uh, and create these shenzhen like zones uh, where these labor intensive industries can flourish where also even some of the companies uh, multinationals that are currently operative in china who find that the wages have gone too far up for them to operate profitably in china and want to go to an alternative location could come to this these coastal zones in india so that uh, they bring in technology and market links and capital workers are supplied by india and india can also begin to then see this kind of shenzhen like revolution uh in in creating jobs and and advancing uh, uh, the levels of technology in india awesome that that's a wonderful message for a t- wonderful note to to end the in- interview on. i mean i'm very happy to interview in columbia university but also sad that you're not in india executing those policies right now so <laughs> yeah it's a trade off so well thank you very much tiger i think uh, this has been a great great conversation <laughs> and your book uh, it's it's out right now it is out absolutely so go to now it's available at amazon uh, or any other uh, bookstores book stores uh, yeah. and everywhere so it's, it's called free called, trade and prosperity it's awesome. called free trade and prosperity awesome. thank you so much for for talking to me pleasure today. great thank you tiger awesome You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.